folks, as I mentioned uh, a little bit ago, we have a guest speaker with us, uh, Mark Prater, who is the director of Sovereign Grace Churches. Uh, just over the last couple days, we had the privilege of jumping into what is a regional assembly of elders. So we've spent many hours over Zoom already together. Uh, and once again, folks, as, as many of you know from Grace City, we've had our ups and downs in terms of partnership, right? Uh, we've had additional uh, even confusion as it relates to Grace City and name changes and, and whatnot. But folks, uh, I think it's been clear that we prize partnership. Uh, partnership is so necessary, not because it's just something that we would like to experience, it's something that we would like to have, but uh, it's something that ultimately is biblical. Uh, that the Bible outlines for us that churches shouldn't be kind of separated unto themselves, but should be connected with the broader body of Christ that would then bring accountability and care. Uh, and just in the last couple days with Zoom meetings going on, it has that has been the case. Our hearts have been warmed by fellowship uh, over the last couple days. Our hearts have been challenged by the Word of God. There's been certain things that, um, different sessions that we've had that have just been a well of encouragement to me, but also then challenging me in ways in which I can better care for you as, as a church. And then, man, our, our, our hearts stirred towards mission. So we got quite a few updates on just what God is doing uh, throughout the denomination, even globally, seeing incredible things take place through the body of Christ. So partnership is something that we are grateful for. It's something that we prize because ultimately it's biblical and it glorifies Christ. And so it's a privilege then to, in a very practical way, share in that partnership uh, this morning. So Mark, thank you for making the track over here uh, and then serving us. So come on forward. I'll grab the stand for you. You can uh, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41 if you would. Thank you, Dan. It is, uh, it is good to be with you. Um, what would make it so much better is that if you were here, it, it would be if you were here. And we could just be together, uh, partly for the purpose of allowing me just to look you into the eye and, and saying thank you for the partnership uh, that we share in the gospel that, that Dan just mentioned. Um, Grace City Church, whether you know it or not, you are both strengthening and influencing our family of churches. Uh, let, me, let me be specific and tell you how. Uh, first of all, how you've responded to this pandemic. You're continuing to meet live stream on Sundays, Thursday night in prayer. Uh, you have some Friday night meetings, I know, where you're doing some worship. Uh, that's just a wonderful expression of a church that says we're not going to let a pandemic to stop us from gathering together. Um, not ideally, obviously, but virtually. And then what you're doing in terms of how you've given generously to a COVID-19 fund you've established here so that you're prepared for a uh, as a church to serve your community with the needs that this pandemic is causing. And if, you're, if you haven't been aware of those needs yet, they're certainly going to come, and you are poised to serve this community around you. And then even, Dan was telling me in the last, I think, week or two, uh, some of the members here were able to get food from a church or a food bank, and then you brought back here to this neighborhood and distributed to people in the community and to members. Uh, all of those are examples 
that we are looking to you as a denomination for, and you're influencing us as a denomination, and we want to be like you in terms of um, just responding to a pandemic. So thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, your ongoing partnership with Sovereign Grace. I had you turn to Isaiah 41 because the most frequent command that we find in Scripture is this, fear not. And one of the places in our Bibles that we see that command is here in Isaiah chapter 41. Um, given the fact that we are in the midst of a pandemic and talking about message options with Dan, it seemed appropriate to look at this fear-conquering, hope-giving chapter. And so this morning, if you're fearful, if you're anxious, if you're weary, if you're hopeless, uh, these words will not only comfort you in this chapter, they will embolden you. The title of my message this morning is Fear Not, and this is essentially what we're going to learn from these first 20 verses. God's activity and presence emboldens the fearful. So we're going to read the first 20 verses of Isaiah 41. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let them speak, let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong! The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I've chosen you and not cast you off, fear not. I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all, as all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I'm the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. 
You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open up rivers on bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they, say, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. May God bless the preaching of His Word. John Adams, who would become the second president of the United States, had gained a reputation of being an effective attorney in the city of Boston in the, in the 1700s. And he made a risky decision in December of 1770 to defend the British soldiers who had fired their rifles into a crowd of Boston citizens, killing five of them in what's become known as the Boston Massacre. The British soldiers were charged with murder, and John Adams, in his effective closing argument that led to the acquittal of those soldiers, said this in a tense Boston courtroom. Facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. I share that quote from a courtroom scene because the context of Isaiah chapter 41 is that of a courtroom. We know that from verse 1 where God himself has summoned all the nations of the world to come and listen to him, verse 1 says, in silence. And the language there, let them approach, like approaching a bench in a courtroom, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment tell us, tells us that God has gathered the nations into his courtroom where he will present his evidence and he calls the nations to make decisions about him and about how he works in the earth. And the reason that God has summoned all of the nations into his courtroom, verse 1 tells us, is so that the peoples can renew their strength. That similar language that you see in the end of Isaiah chapter 40, you know that in verse 31, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Here, however, those that gather into God's courtroom and they hear the evidence that God presents is another means by which the peoples can have their strength renewed. But the question is, why did the original audience need to have their strength renewed? Well, even though all of the nations have been gathered into God's courtroom, Jew and Gentile, the bulk of the evidence that's presented in this chapter is for the nation of Israel, it's for God's people. You see, at this point in redemptive history, the nation of Israel, the God's people, they're being held 
captive in exile in Babylon, and as the years of their exile wore on, they became fearful and anxious, weary and hopeless. And so God knew that they needed to hear facts, as John Adams says, are stubborn things that are immovable and necessary when we are being ruled by the dictates of our passion, as Adam says, contextually here in Isaiah 41, that meaning fear and anxiety. Maybe that's you this morning. You're saying, I'm one of those people who needs to have my strength renewed because this sheltering in place is getting really old. Or maybe you've lost your job or your business has been affected and there's a drop in your income and you're anxious about how you're going to provide for yourself or for your family. Or maybe it's just the uncertainty of the immediate future. How are we going to open up these, the state of Pennsylvania again? Or, or even just the, your future in general seems uncertain and so there's this, there's this fear. There's this anxiety in your life. See, if that's you, God is inviting you into His courtroom today and He's going to present His facts and He wants you to make a decision about Him and about how He works in your life. And by the way, the the evidence that you're going to hear in the courtroom today from this chapter is very much God-centered evidence. We know that because the personal pronoun I is used 20 times in this chapter where God refers to Himself. So the phrases I am, I the Lord, I, the God of Israel, is used at least eight times to speak of God's presence in our lives. And then phrases like, I took, I have, I will, I make, is used at least ten times referring to God's activity in our lives. See, this God-saturated text is intended to renew your strength this morning by presenting stubborn facts about God's presence and activity in your life that will embolden and comfort you. So, four fear-conquering truths that we find in these 20 verses. Number one, God's sovereign activity. God's sovereign activity. Note how God begins to present His evidence by asking the nations a question there in the first part of verse 2. Here's the question. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? Even though he's not specifically identified, we know historically that the one God stirred up from the east is Cyrus, the emperor of Persia. The text also gives us clues that this, in fact, is Cyrus because he was known as one who decisively defeated his enemies, which is why he's described there in verse 2 as one who tramples kings underfoot and makes them like dust. See, the answer to God's question is significant because remember the nation of Israel is in exile in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. And as the decades of their exile, of their imprisonment, wore on, they became weary and fearful and anxious and discouraged. However, we know historically that Cyrus did ride swiftly and triumphantly from Persia, and he defeated Babylon in 539 B.C. He liberates all of the people held in captivity, including the Jews, and allows them to return home. In other words, what we find here in Isaiah 41 is decades before it happens, God announces that he would stir up one from the east who would defeat Babylon and set his 
people free. Now note that Cyrus is not even mentioned by name in this chapter. In fact, he's not even mentioned by name until you get to Isaiah chapter 44. That's intentional because Isaiah wants us to know that this is God's activity and this is God's doing. And to emphasize this point about God's activity, God asks another question there in verse 4, and then he answers his own question with this ringing clarity. Look at verse 4 again. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. What that verse says is that God sovereignly rules the world and He activates who He wants to activate, when He wants to activate them for His good purposes, including in this chapter to set His exiled people Free. You see, God's sovereign activity is intended to embolden the fearful. God's sovereign activity is a stubborn truth that tells you that this pandemic that we are in and all of the trials surrounding this pandemic are not random. Rather, they are part of God's sovereign plan for your life and He's going to use them for your good as he sovereignly rules in your life. One of the things that I do as a pastor at Covenant Fellowship Church is I, I lead a faith and work group, Bible and book study, people of, it's for people of any vocation in our church. And there's a man by the name of John in that Bible study that I lead. And when I was preparing the sermon, when I first, first preached it as, at our church, he sent me an email, and this is what he said. He said, Mark, I I prayed for your sermon prep this morning. I prayed that God would help you to remember that folks like me need encouragement in the things that God has called us to do vocationally. In a nine-to-five world that many times seems intent on destruction, that you would preach in a way that we would know that God would protect us from fear that he would help us and support us in the many trials a good and sovereign God brings our way. John gets it, doesn't he? He he, he gets the fact that the trials that he's currently facing in his workplace are not random at all, but they're being brought about by a good, sovereign God, and that truth alone renews John's strength for what God has called him to do vocationally. However, if you're uncertain that God's sovereign activity can conquer your fear, there's one other truth that I want you to see in the second half of verse 4. Look how God describes himself in the second half of verse 4. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. This is one verse of many in our Bibles that reveals to us the self-existence of God, meaning that He's always existed and always will exist. And that theological truth has many implications for our lives. Here's one. God's self-existence means that He's not dependent on anyone or anything. Michael Haken says it this way, precisely because God is not dependent on anyone or anything He has created, We are assured that nothing will keep him from fulfilling his promises. And listen to this. 
and being there for us. So as you continue to face trials of various kinds during this pandemic, you can be assured that no trial, that no marriage challenge, that no job loss will keep God from accomplishing His good sovereign purposes in your life. Uh, Like you, one of the things uh, that we've done as a church is we've created a place on our website where people can leave COVID-19 prayer requests. And I want to share one with you from a single lady lady in our church by the name of Karen. This was her prayer request. She wrote us and said, I'm, a one, I'm one of among many who was furloughed from my job this past week. I have multiple jobs, but the one that generates most of my income is the one that I was furloughed from. Now, I'm waiting to see how all of this unfolds, but I'm 100% trusting in God and His sovereign purposes in my life. Would you please pray for me? So, so how, can, how can Karen be 100% trusting in God to provide? Because she believes in God's sovereign activity and trusts that God will provide when she presently doesn't see how he's going to do that. You see, God's sovereign activity, it lifts her anxiety, it gives her courage, and it renews her strength. Do you see how God's sovereign activity emboldens the fearful? Now, did you note in verses 5-7 through there how the nations respond to the evidence they hear in God's courtroom? They hear what God is about to do, and verse 5 says they are afraid, they're fearful. And they deal with their fear, not by running to the self-existent God who can alleviate their fear, but they run to these false gods whose existence depends upon the work of human hands. And then they foolishly seek to reassure themselves that their man-made gods, their man-made idols, are good and strong and will protect them from the Persian army. I mean, the irony here is unmistakable, isn't it? In fear, they turn to the gods that can't alleviate their fear, and they turn away from the God who says to them, fear not. I mean, it's illogical. But here's the reality. We are all prone to think illogical thoughts and make illogical decisions when we are driven by fear. See, it's in those moments that I need, that you need this stubborn truth of God's sovereign activity to speak into our fears and point us to our God who says to us, I got this, so fear not. And so let me ask you, if you are fearful, and when you are fearful, when you are anxious, who do you turn to? Turn to your sovereign God who rules over all of history and whose self-existence assures you that nothing will stop His sovereign purposes in your life. And that will embolden you. Okay, second fear-conquering truth that we see in these these verses, God's powerful presence. God's powerful presence. In verse 8, God now shifts His attention specifically to His people, to the nation of Israel. He says to them that you are my chosen ones. He calls them in verse 8, a friend. And twice in verses 8 and 9, calls them his servants. And then says to them in verse 10, 
Fear not, for I am with you. See, God's presence emboldens the fearful because we know, we're certain that God is with us. Now this fear-conquering truth that not only comforts His people, He goes on to explain how his, the presence of God will work on behalf of God's people in verses 10-12. through 12. Look at those verses again. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. These verses speak of God's powerful presence in our lives who acts by, it says in, there in verse 10, by upholding us with His righteous right hand. What that literally means is that God does what is right in dealing with the enemies that we face. And as He acts, did you note in those verses there in 11 and 12, how things were reversed. There's a reversal theme in those verses. So contextually, it's Israel who is in exile that is the one that are dismayed. And they will watch God powerfully act so that those who are keeping them in exile, Babylon, they will become the ones who are dismayed. There's reversal there, isn't there? Those who strive against Israel with such, in such a dominant way that they hold them in exile, God says, shall be as nothing at all in verse 12. There's reversal there again. The question is, why this powerful reversal? Verse 13 answers the question. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. Oh, man. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. The word for there tells us that it is God's presence, His powerful presence, who, by the way, holds our right hand, as the verse says, and He turns dismayed, fearful, anxious servants into courageous people. These verses, they they remind us of something. They, They remind us that when we are fearful, we can have this tendency to make our enemies, to make our challenges bigger than they really are. But when you are a Christian who lives aware, with the, has an awareness of God's presence and the knowledge that He upholds you with His righteous right hand, your enemies, your challenges, they, they shrink down to their right proportionality. A couple of years ago, we had three pastors that traveled from India and they, they came and attended the Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference. And one of the highlights for me was having uh, a two-and-a-half-hour lunch with these men, Christians who are preaching the gospel in a Hindu nation. And, and because of where they're at in India, they told stories of persecution. There was a man, pastor there by the name of Siraj, who told me this story. He said, Mark, I was, I was in my town. I went to my town square And I just preached the gospel to a group of Hindus that had gathered around. And I preached it boldly and clearly. And when I got done, I 
I, I headed home, and I went down this street that I thought was a vacant street, and as I walked, I began to hear these footsteps behind me, and there's this group of men that were running after me, and they caught me, and they began to beat me and, and kick me. And I just cried out to God. I said, God, I, I, I need your help. I don't know where you're at, but would you come now? Would you send help? Would you rescue me from these men? And he said, Mark, you're not going to believe this. Out of nowhere came this other group of men who grabbed these guys off of me. They, they, they chased them away. And he said, that experience was significant for me. He said, I'm no longer fearful to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because I know that my God will uphold me with his righteous right hand. You see, that experience of God's presence to come and rescue me, it, it put my enemies in their right proportionality. See, I tell you that story because Siraj's God is your God. And so whatever challenges you are facing, whatever is causing fear in your life, whatever enemies you are facing, this text tells you that God's powerful presence is there for you and he holds you by your right hand and he fights off his en your enemies with his instruments of righteousness. So in light of God's powerful presence in your life, I must ask you in the days to come to see your enemies in their right proportionality. There's one other, I would say, fear-conquering picture that we see in these verses that I just want us to look at very quickly. We see it in verses 10 and 13. So in verse 10, God says to you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand meaning that in his right hand, God holds these powerful weapons of righteousness and he uses those in dealing with your challenges and with your enemies. And then in verse 13, God says, For I, the Lord, hold your right hand. These two verses present a powerful picture of God who holds these powerful instruments of righteousness in his right hand and in his left hand, he holds your hand. And in light of the gospel, if, if you are a born-again Christian, he holds your hand as a father holds a son or daughter's hand, and he fights for you with fatherly instinct. See, God's activity and loving presence, it emboldens the fearful. Okay, third fear-conquering truth we see in these verses, God's transforming help. Note how God addresses his people there in verse 14. Fear not, you worm. Jacob? Worm? God, I thought we were friends in verse 8. Why worm? Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. See, God calls them worms not to demean them, but to awaken their need their, awaken their need, the, the awareness of their weakness and awaken their need for their Redeemer, who is the Holy One of Israel. That, that language, Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, would have conjured up for the original audience God's saving acts in past redemptive history. So the, their, their exodus out of slavery, out of Egypt that, that he brought about, through Moses, his, his deliverance uh, 
from their enemies of the Egyptians on the banks of the Red Sea. So in their time of exile, what God is saying to his people is, I'm not only your past redeemer, I am your present redeemer as well, so fear not. Now now note the nature of God's help as redeemer in verses 15 through 16. Behold, I make you, he just called them worms, right? So he's now making them a threshing sledge. New, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. See, God transforms weak people who he calls worms, and he makes them into a powerful threshing sledge that thresh mountains and crush hills and and winnow them all away. See, all of that is imagery intended to convey this truth, that whatever obstacles face God's people, whether enemies or pandemics or trials, or yes, even our own sin, those obstacles obstacles will be swept away because of God's transforming help where he makes us strong. J. Alec Motyer says this, whatever barriers may confront the Lord's people, they are not to be measured in proportion to the people's inherent weakness, but in proportion to the Lord's promise to transform. And, And certainly the transforming work of God for his people as their redeemer seen in this text not only points back to his past saving acts, Certainly, this text points forward to the saving work of Jesus Christ that He has done for us as our Redeemer on the cross. See, our biggest obstacle was our sin. It it held us in captivity as Israel is being held in exile as then we awaited judgment and wrath. But at the appointed time, God the Father stirs up God the Son And Jesus Christ steps into our dark and fallen world, and as our Redeemer, He sheds His precious blood on the cross for our sin, conquering its condemning power, granting us forgiveness, and setting us free from the dominion of sin. See, it's the cross, that symbol of weakness, where we see God's most powerful, transforming work that has ever been done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the cross where our Redeemer transforms sinners and makes them into saints. It's the cross that transforms the vile and makes us clean. It's the cross where the Redeemer transforms our fear of death into hope of eternal life. See, only our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, can transform an enemy into a friend who has eternal life in Jesus Christ. See, here's my point. If your Redeemer has conquered your biggest obstacle, meaning your sin, then certainly He has the power to transform and to work in whatever obstacle you are currently facing. And that alone can lift your fear and anxiety and give you courage. See, today what this text is saying to you is that your Redeemer is not only your past Redeemer, He is your present Redeemer, so fear not.
Fourth fear-conquering truth that we find in this text, God's timely provision. God's timely provision. God not only presents evidence in His courtroom here of His sovereign activity and, and rulership over all of history, of His powerful presence and of His transforming help, He also presents evidence now in these verses of His timely provision. And He provides in a way that only the Creator can provide. Look at that in verses 17 through 20. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the plain and the pine together that they may see and know. May consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. See, the, the imagery there in the text tells us that in the wilderness in the desert, and, and by the way, the nation of Israel, when they left Babylon, would have had to go through wilderness and desert to get back to Israel. In the wilderness and the desert where there is no easy access to water and there are no trees to provide shade, it is the Lord who provides. The text says rivers, fountains, and pools to quench our thirst. And Did you read that? Seven different kinds of trees where we can rest on our journey in the shade. The point of the text is that only God can refresh the poor and needy who are fearful and anxious by providing in only ways that He can. Keep in view the purpose of this courtroom scene. We've been gathered into God's courtroom, verse 1 says, because we, need to, because we are people who need to have our strength renewed. See, God is speaking to His people in the original audience who have been in exile for decades, and again, they were fearful, they were anxious, they were hopeless, and the net effect on their life is that they were weary and exhausted. And yet God says to them in their need, He speaks to them in their need, and He says, as your Creator, I will bring timely provision to renew your strength. You, you know this, prolonged trials and challenges, they create fear and anxiety. They can be physically and emotionally and mentally exhausting. I mean, hasn't that been the, the effect of this pandemic? Probably on all of us. We've, we've felt a weariness maybe we've never experienced before. Or maybe this morning your soul feels like the, the desert and the wilderness that's described here in these verses, you're, you're tired and your soul is dry. If that's you, don't miss what you're to do with your dry soul. Don't miss what you're to do with your weariness and exhaustion. It tells us in verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water, I, the Lord, will answer them. That language is similar to what Jesus said to those who are spiritually dry in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever belie believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow 
rivers of living water. Today, if your soul is like a desert, if, if life has drained you, go to Jesus. Receive His refreshment. Allow His living water to refresh your soul. To the tired and exhausted, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I, Jesus, will give you rest. Today, if you are burdened and if you're weary, draw near to Jesus. Let Him unburden you of your weariness. Allow His peace and rest to be in your life. Do you know why we're to do that when we are in need? The text answers that question, that they may see and know, verse 20, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created it. You see, as Christians, we're not to be these perfect specimens that pretend like we are never fearful or anxious, because that's not true. We are fearful and anxious at times. We are not to be people who walk through the trials and pandemics of this fallen world, pretending that we aren't hopeless or even exhausted at times, because we are, aren't we? Rather, we're to be servants. We're to be friends. We're to be worms. <laughs> and those who at times are truly poor and needy. And yet, people who today have stood in God's courtroom, we've heard His evidence, and because of His sovereign activity and His powerful presence and His transforming help and His timely provision, we are people who fear no evil. Because the stubborn facts that we've heard in this courtroom, we not only believe, we, we apply them to our life. And so we believe that even when we are weary, we believe what it says, that God has a hold of our right hand. And He will never let us go. And so we march on through this pandemic with faith and with hope and with courage in our God so that people would see that this is the Lord's doing in our life, and He alone should receive all the glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for any of those that might be watching this who are tired and weary and fearful, maybe anxious. Would you, would you meet them wherever they're at, in their living room or their kitchen or their office and... Mm -hmm. Fill them with your spirit. I pray that the stubborn truth that we found in these verses would not only strengthen them, I pray it would lift their fear and their anxiousness. I pray that you would give them peace and that you would give them courage and that you would give them joy. Joy in the Lord. So that people around them just notice and say, that, that's the Lord's doing in all of our lives, continue to work in a way that brings Christ much glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, man. Uh, that kind of stuff gets me excited. Um, how relevant are all those characteristics of our God? 
folks, this is who our God is. Um, and I, I feel burdened specifically for those of you who may feel as though like, well, that may be true of God, but I, he doesn't want me in that. He doesn't want to share his help to me in that specific way. That's the problem of shame. In the coming weeks, we're going to be working through our series on addiction, and we'll be tackling that all the more. And yet I believe the Lord would just kind of put his finger on that particular point this morning. He, he is a father who is holding out his hand with the weapons of warfare in one hand and reaching out to you in the other. He is a good dad, a good father who desires to tend to you even this morning. And he will help even do battle against shame when it comes to the beauty and work of what Christ has done on our behalf. Shame now is something that he removes from us. We have a perfect, acceptable standing before the Father in Christ. There is nothing, as Romans 8 would say, that can separate you from that love. The hand of the Father reaching out to you is not encumbered even by your failings this past week. He is all the more a hand out to you, ready to care for you even in our failings. Do not allow the love of the Father to be hindered by some sense of shame, folks. That's part of the strategy of the enemy who would say that may be true of him, but it's not exactly true that he would want to give me that kind of care and love. Oh, yes, he, he does. He does. Let's identify the lie of shame and let's announce the truth that in Christ we are have been and are being incredibly loved on by our Father. This God who sovereignly works for the good of his people. This God who is powerfully present for the good of his people. This God whose transforming help is ever present for his people and a God whose timely provision is just constantly, meticulously imparted for the good of his people. Thanks be to God. Father, we are so thankful that you would grant such care to us in such uncertain times. What is uncertain to you? <laughs> These times are not uncertain. You are sovereign over it, powerfully working through it for our good and your glory. God, I pray specifically for those who may be battling shame right now. Let the lies of Satan be known and renounced, and may the truth of Jesus Christ rule and reign perfectly accepted in Christ, and therefore constantly, consistently loved on. May they sense your hand being held out to them. May they sense the warmth of your presence even right now. May shame, even as we sung earlier, turn to glory, the glory of basking in your incredible love. God, thank you. You are good. You are mighty. You are loving. You are such a help, and you're such a provider. We're so grateful. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. You are worthy, then, of our worship.
It's in Jesus' name. Amen.